Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, December 15th, 2000. During the early morning, Sedgwick County 911 received an alarming call from a man who told them he had just found a young woman on his porch who was naked, bleeding, and begging for help. The woman relayed a horrifying story to the dispatchers. She told them she had been shot in the head and that four of her friends had been executed at a soccer field near Greenwich Road, Wichita. Deputy Matthew Lynch was the first to arrive at the scene, where he found four victims lying in the blood-stained snow next to a Honda Civic. The brutal mass killing was the second quadruple homicide to occur in the area within eight days but this incident would be connected to a string of violent attacks committed by two brothers over the course of a week. The spree became known as the Wichita Massacre. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 65, the first episode of Season 3 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. After 10 p.m. on the night of December 7th, when 23-year-old baseball coach Andrew Schrieber drove to a come-and-go convenience store in East Wichita, he parked his 1998 Ford Expedition in one of the only available spots, a few meters from the storefront, close to the dumpsters. After returning to his truck, Andrew noticed a young black man walking toward the car with his arm outstretched. As he got closer, Andrew could see that the man had a gun. The gunman told Andrew to move over and hit him in the back of the head with the gun before driving out of the store parking lot to another location. Here, Andrew was forced to hand over his wallet, and as he did, a second gunman got into the car. Over the next two hours, the gunman drove to ATMs around the area, withdrawing $300 at a time until he was no longer able to make withdrawals. It was after midnight when Andrew's truck came to a stop on an isolated road near Ketchy, and he started to worry that he was about to be killed. The gunman took a guest-branded watch from Andrew's wrist and ordered him to lie face down on the floor. As the second gunman arrived in another car, Andrew began praying silently, making two requests as he waited to be shot. He later said, The first request I made was that if this is my time to go, please make it quick. The second request I made in my prayer that the people close in my life knew how much I loved them. 
Suddenly, the gunman then got out of the truck and threw the keys in the middle of the road before firing three shots. The bullets blew out the tire, and Andrew lay frozen in fear until he heard the second car speed away. Petrified, he ventured out to retrieve the keys and drove his truck back toward his home, where he reported the carjacking to the police. He had only seen one of his attackers closely enough to remember what he looked like, and he gave a description to police. Andrew was lucky to be alive, and at the time, no one could have imagined just how quickly his assailants would escalate. Three days later, 55-year-old Wichita Symphony cellist Anne Walenta was making her way home from rehearsal to her home on Dublin Court. It was just before 9.30 p.m. on December 11, 2000, and the residential street was quiet as usual. Anne and her husband, Don, were moving, but their pets were still in the house on Dublin Court, so she wanted to check on them. As she drove her GMC Yukon into the cul-de-sac, she noticed a light-colored sedan following her. When she pulled into her driveway, the car passed her house, and she saw it turn around and come to a stop. There were two men in the car, and within seconds of stopping the vehicle, one of the men had gotten out and began walking quickly toward Anne's vehicle. At first, Anne assumed they were lost or maybe they needed help, and as she reached over to lower the window, the man pointed a gun at her and told her not to move. Anne panicked and attempted to drive away, but as the car moved, the gunman fired three rounds into the vehicle striking her in the torso and arm. Anne slumped forward against the steering wheel, causing the horn to sound continuously. With the shrill sound drawing attention, the gunman got back into the car and sped away. A neighbor, Anna Kelly, heard the horn and went outside to see what was happening. She could see the lights on Anne Walenta's car flashing and heard her call out for help. Anna shouted to her husband to call 911, and ran over to the vehicle. Anne told her that she had been shot by a young black male with wiry hair. She thought his hair looked blonde. As Anna Kelly opened the driver's door to help her neighbor, Anne's leg slid out and she couldn't lift it back in. Anne told Anna she didn't think she was going to make it, but Anna told her she would make it and that help was on the way. Anne Walenta was transported to Wesley Medical Center where she underwent emergency surgery to treat her injuries. The bullets had perforated her lung and severed her spinal cord, leaving her paralyzed from the waist down. But her condition stabilized and within a few days, she was able to speak with detectives. By that point, it was too late. Anne's attackers had found another target. The following account has several references to sexual violence. We have chosen to limit the graphic details of the night as much as possible without minimizing what happened. 25-year-old H.G., as she will be known throughout the episode, arrived at the triplex in Birchwood Drive where her longtime boyfriend, 26-year-old Jason Beffert, lived with his best friends, 27-year-old Brad Haka and 29-year-old Aaron Sander at around 8.30 p.m. on December 14th. Jason was a junior varsity basketball coach and a science teacher at Augusta High School. He wasn't due home for another 30 minutes or so, so H.G. took her dog, Nikki, inside. Brad was downstairs watching something on his prized 52-inch television, and Aaron was beginning to cook dinner in the kitchen. H.G. was an elementary school teacher, and she sat on Jason's bed and graded some papers while she waited for ER to start on the TV in the bedroom. Shortly before 9 p.m., 25-year-old Heather Muller arrived. Heather and Aaron were close, not only because they'd once dated, but because they were both involved with the church. Heather was a Sunday school teacher, and Aaron considered joining the priesthood. Heather joined Aaron in the kitchen to cook, and at around 9.15, Jason came home. After speaking with H.G. for a few minutes, Jason went downstairs to speak with Brad. By 10.30 p.m., the house was quiet. 
Jason had changed out of his practice clothes and gotten ready for bed. The rest of his housemates were in their rooms, so Jason undertook the nightly routine of turning off the lights on the Christmas tree, in the kitchen and adjoining sitting room, locking the doors, and switching off the porch light that shone into Jason's bedroom on the first floor at the front of the house. At around 11 p.m., the porch light switched back on, and Jason groaned, irritated that he would have to get out of bed again. Downstairs, Aaron had heard a knock at the door, and he opened it to find two men aiming handguns at his head. Within seconds, one of the gunmen burst into Jason's room and ripped the covers off the bed where H.G. and Jason were sitting. The second gunman brought Aaron into the room and pushed him onto the bed. The men then demanded to know if there was anyone else in the house or if there was a safe. One said, in a house this fucking nice, there has to be a safe somewhere. They were told there was no safe and that Brad and Heather were downstairs. So while one stayed in the room with Aaron, Jason, and HG, the other went downstairs and pulled Heather and Brad out of the rooms at gunpoint. HG's dog, Nikki, was growling at the armed intruders and one of the men warned the group that if they didn't grab the dog, they would shoot her. The group of friends didn't know the men and had no idea they had followed their next-door neighbor home earlier that night. The neighbor was a woman who had driven her BMW home from a restaurant she worked at. She noticed a tan-colored Toyota Camry following her, so instead of parking in the driveway, she parked on the street. The men, who had spent the last week on a crime spree around Wichita, targeted their victims by following people who drove expensive cars. It's believed that they broke into the wrong house that night. After rounding up Brad, Aaron, Heather, Jason, and HG, the men ordered the group to strip naked. There was cash in the house, but the group told the men they each had ATM cards and money in their bank accounts. The men then ordered H.G. and Heather to come out of the bedroom and into a wet bar area between the bedroom and the living room. Here, the women were forced to perform sexual acts on each other as the brothers watched from the bedroom doorway. Afterward, Heather was sent back into the bedroom and Brad was ordered to come out and have sex with H.G. Jason was then forced to do the same thing. When Aaron was taken into the room, he tried to resist and said he wouldn't do it, but he was hit in the back of the head with the butt of the gun. H.G. was then returned to Jason's bedroom, where the rest of the group had been ordered into the closet. Heather was then taken out to where Aaron was, and when he protested, he was hit with a golf club and told he had until 11.54 to get an erection, or they said they would shoot him. They taunted Aaron, counting down from 11.52 to 11.53 to 11.54. When the time was up, they sent Aaron back into the closet and pulled Jason out. After forcing the men in the group to rape the women, one of the brothers took the friends to ATMs in Jason's silver Dodge Dakota pickup. Brad was taken from the house first. He withdrew $300 from his account at an ATM on 21st Street. While Brad was at the ATM, the other brother continued with their sick actions toward the housemates. H.G. was singled out again and raped. Jason was taken to the ATM next and withdrew more than $200. In turn, H.G. withdrew $500. She later described her conversation with the gunman as he drove her to the ATM. She said, He had asked me what the other guy had done to me, and I said, he forced me to have sex with him, and he just kind of laughed. Then he asked me if I liked it. I said yes, thinking that would appease him. He asked me if I had ever been with a black man before, and I said no. He asked me if he was better than my boy. I said yes. He asked me if I liked being with a girl, and I said no, and he said, baby, that's all right. You ain't got to lie to me. And then we just drove for a while. And then I asked him if he was going to shoot us, and he said no. And I said, you know, you can have whatever you want. Please don't hurt us, I said. Do you promise you're not going to shoot us or kill us? And he said, yeah. And we were coming up on the bank. Aaron was taken to the ATM last and withdrew $350. 
As H.G. was forced back into the closet beside Jason and Brad, one of the brothers walked around the property looking for valuables. He opened a popcorn tin beside Jason's bed and pulled out a diamond engagement ring. Jason had bought it with the intention of proposing to H.G. over the Christmas period. Once Aaron was taken back into the house, the brothers once again sexually assaulted H.G. and Heather in the bathroom. Shortly before 2 a.m., the group were brought to the garage. H.G.'s dog, Nikki, was left muzzled in the closet. Heather was told to get into the passenger seat of Aaron's Honda Accord, while the three male friends were forced into the trunk. One of the brothers got into the driver's seat while the other took H.G. and got into Jason's truck. The brothers drove the group along Greenwich Road and pulled in front of a median at a soccer field. H.G. could see the clock in Jason's truck read 2.07 a.m. She was told to get into the front seat of Aaron's car beside Heather while the brothers took Aaron, Brad, and Jason out of the trunk. It was the first chance the women had gotten to speak to each other since the ordeal began three hours earlier. H.G. turned to Heather and told her, they're going to shoot us. Brad, Jason, and Aaron were ordered to get on their knees in front of the car. Heather and H.G. joined them a few moments later. Heather had knelt beside Aaron, and without warning, one of the brothers shot her in the head. Aaron began screaming and begging for his life. He said, please, no, sir, please. Then he was shot. One by one, the friends were shot in the head. H.G. was the last to be shot, but she didn't immediately fall over, so one of the brothers kicked her in the back, sending her forward into the snow. As her vision began to blur, H.G. heard the sound of an engine starting, and then Jason's Dodge truck was driven over her body and the bodies of her friends as they bled out. H.G. miraculously survived trauma, repeated rapes, a shot at the back of the head, and being run over by the pickup truck. Lying sideways in the snow, wearing just a sweater, she glanced over at her boyfriend, who was bleeding profusely from his face. She waited until she could no longer see the headlights of the Dodge Dakota the suspects had left in, and got up to look for survivors. In an attempt to help Jason, she removed her sweater and tied it around his head. As she quietly called her friend's names, she realized that she was the only one who had survived the ordeal. Looking out into the darkness, H.G. saw some lights in the distance, and as she began running through a field along Highway 96, she saw a house illuminated by Christmas lights. She ran for over a mile, naked and barefoot, through fields, over barbed wire fences, intermittently dropping to the ground and covering her body in snow when a car drove past, out of fear that it was the attackers returning. H.G. made it to a dirt road that led to a house, and, after running as fast as she could to the front porch, she began ringing the doorbell and pounding on the door. Steve Johnson and his wife Kim heard the commotion at the door of their Regency Lakes home and opened it to find H.G. She begged for help, and after taking her inside, she told them that her friends had been killed by men who had broken into their house, and she needed to tell someone what had happened before she died too. Steve and his wife gave H.G. a blanket and called 911. H.G. was able to describe the attackers, what had happened to them at the house in Birchwood, and she told the dispatcher where emergency responders could find her friends. She told the dispatcher that she had been raped and she wanted them to check her for DNA if she died. Ambulances and police vehicles arrived soon afterwards and H.G. was transported to the hospital. At 2.44 a.m., a call came out over the Wichita police radio, alerting deputies in the area to a potential homicide with multiple victims near 29th and Greenwich. Deputy Sheriff Matthew Lynch was the first officer to arrive at the scene. As he stopped his patrol vehicle, the headlights reflected a silver Honda Civic at the end of a median by a soccer complex. 
He got out of his patrol car and carefully began to approach the Civic, unsure if the suspects were still in the area. Deputy Lynch aimed the beam of his flashlight toward the passenger side of the vehicle and noticed a woman lying in the snow. He rushed to her side, and before he could check for a pulse, he saw three more bodies lying next to her. There were no signs of life, and pools of blood were starkly contrasted against the blanket of crisp white snow that had fallen a few hours earlier. The deputy couldn't find a pulse on any of the victims, but it seemed like one of the men were struggling to breathe, so he radioed dispatch and told them, Four Code Blues. This meant that the victims were in cardiac arrest. An EMS supervisor arrived at the scene six minutes later, and by 3 a.m., determined that all of the victims were code black, meaning their wounds were not treatable, and nothing could be done to save them. They could see the depression in the snow where H.G. had laid down beside her friends, and it was easy to see which direction she ran as her footprints and blood made a trail out of the field. Detective Kelly Otis rushed to Wesley Medical Center to speak with H.G. She was in critical condition, but the adrenaline surging through her body meant that she was still awake and still speaking when the detective arrived at 3.20 a.m. H.G. told the detective they were looking for two black males in their early 20s. One had been wearing a black, thigh-length leather jacket and gloves, and the other, who H.G. described as the skinnier of the pair, was wearing an orange and black FUBU-branded sweater, jeans, and tan-colored boots. She also said that he had hair that was clumped together and stuck out. H.G. knew the suspects had left the field in Jason's Dodge Dakota, Within hours, every officer in the city was on the lookout for a vehicle matching that description. Police officers began searching the triplex on Birchwood Drive. Sergeant John Hoofer was en route to the house when he spotted a Dodge Dakota going south on 127th Street East near the scene. He attempted to follow the truck but lost sight of it. As he turned to go back, he heard a call over the radio about a black male driving around the area in a white 1987 Plymouth. Sergeant Hoofer stopped the car and asked the driver to identify himself. The driver said his name was Reginald Carr, and he was allowed to continue on his way. The house on Birchwood Drive had been ransacked, television sets had been taken from the entertainment consoles in the house, and the clothes had been taken from the closets. Officers also found another tragic victim of the horrific attack in the house. H.G.'s dog, Nikki, was found to have been bludgeoned and stabbed to death. Forensic investigators began collecting samples from around the house. They learned from H.G. that the attackers had tried to clean up using Windex. H.G.'s condition stabilized. Her life had been saved when a plastic clip she had used to hold up her hair that night deflected the bullet. As dawn broke, news stations began reporting on the crime and issued descriptions of the wanted men and Jason's truck. Christian Taylor was at his apartment complex at East 21st Street when he noticed a Dodge Dakota in the parking lot. A man was standing next to the truck, so Christian got into his own vehicle and drove to the nearest police substation to report that he believed the truck from the news was parked outside of his apartment. By 7 a.m., teams of officers began to make their way toward the apartment complex. As they positively identified the truck as belonging to Jason, they were approached by a foreign exchange student, Rita Obel Nsangalufu, who told them that he had helped a man move a large television from the truck into building number eight. Rewa told the officers he had carried the television up to apartment 819, and a woman had let the man inside and asked him where he had been all night. Within minutes, armed officers lined the stairwell leading to the apartment and began pounding on the door. They identified themselves as Wichita police and ordered the occupants to come outside. A woman opened the door but kept the chain on. 
and before she could speak, the officer saw a male inside the property run out the back door to the balcony. Six officers had been watching the balcony with their guns drawn, and they saw the man attempt to climb over the railing before he noticed them. Once he saw the officers, he stepped back. As he did, he was ordered to the ground by the squad who were at the front door. The man was then searched, and in his pocket they found Jason's credit card, almost $1,000 in cash, and Heather's watch. The man gave police a false name, but news cameras captured the moment he was being placed into the back of a patrol car, and Andrew Schrieber called the police to tell them that the man they had just arrested was the man who had abducted him at gunpoint a week earlier. The media continued to report that the police were still searching for a second suspect. Within a couple of hours, a call came in from a woman on North Pennsylvania Avenue. She told the dispatcher, The guy you're looking for is at my house. Tony Green's daughter, Tronda, had started seeing a man about a week earlier. On the morning of December 15th, Tony found this man sleeping on their sofa. His name was Jonathan. He had left his leather jacket out, and Tony put her hand in the pocket out of curiosity. She later said, Just being nosy. I've got teenage daughters, and they don't tell you everything. You have to investigate. She found a small jewelry box, and inside was a diamond engagement ring. Tony knew it couldn't be for her daughter. They'd only been dating a week. She thought back to the news reports that had been on all morning. She'd heard that the police were looking for a suspect who had robbed and killed four people, and remembered that the reporter said an engagement ring had been taken. She also heard that the suspect was believed to have been driving a white Plymouth, the same car seen by police close to the house on Birchwood Drive. Her daughter's boyfriend had arrived in a white Plymouth in the early hours of that morning, wearing an orange and black FUBU sweater. He had claimed he had missed his train to Ohio. Tony was terrified. She told Tronda to grab her niece and get out of the house. Tony and the girls ran across to their neighbor's house. As Tony told the dispatcher the suspect was at her home, Jonathan opened the front door. He began gesturing for them to come back inside. Just as he closed the door, patrol vehicles sped onto the street and Jonathan ran outside. He ran into a neighboring yard before crossing a fence and heading toward North Kansas Avenue. Within minutes, he was found hiding on a porch and taken into custody. He had over $1,000 in cash in his pocket at the time of his arrest. Within 12 hours of the brutal murders of Jason Beffert, Brad Haka, Aaron Sandler, and Heather Muller, police had arrested the men they believed were responsible. They were identified as 23-year-old Reginald Carr and his younger brother, 20-year-old Jonathan. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Reginald Carr Jr. was the firstborn son of Janice Harding and Reginald Carr Sr. in November of 1977. The young couple from Cleveland, Ohio, had their first baby when Janice was just 16 and two years later, they were married. 
They had another child not long after in early 1978, a little girl named Regina. And two years later, their youngest son, Jonathan, was born. Things in the Carr household were relatively normal. But after their youngest daughter, Regina, died from leukemia when she was just a toddler, the grief and loss caused a divide between Janice and Reginald Sr. The couple began fighting and drinking to excess. The fights escalated to violence on a number of occasions before Janice left with the children and moved into her mother's home. An accusation of rape against Jonathan while he was in elementary school led to severe bullying. Although the accusation was later proven to be false, Jonathan attempted suicide for the first time when he was just seven years old. The Carr brothers were moved around between relatives where it was later alleged they suffered extreme physical and sexual abuse. By the time they were in their teens, Reginald had begun getting into trouble with police in Dodge City. When he was convicted of aggravated assault and violated the terms of his probation order, he was sent to prison in 1996. He left behind two children with two different mothers. The younger brother, Jonathan, had also been in trouble for theft. He continued to struggle with suicidal ideation, attempting to take his own life for the second time by drinking antifreeze when he was just 16 years old. Eventually, Jonathan's emotions seemed to stabilize, and he kept down a steady job and a girlfriend by the time he was 20. Reginald was released from prison on parole in the spring of 2000. Despite being arrested twice between then and December of that year, his parole ended December 1st. Three days later, the Carr brothers decided to get out of Dodge City and made their way to Wichita, where their sister and Reginald's girlfriend Stephanie both lived. Over the 10 days that followed, they committed crimes that increased in violence, with the sole motive of getting money. The cars were out at Town East Square on the night of December 7th, where they met Tronda Adams. She gave Jonathan her number, and a few hours later, they carjacked Andrew Schreiber. That same night, four teenagers had been shot to death by two other men in a house on North Erie Avenue a horrific crime that no one expected to be repeated. Three days later, Ann Walenta was shot three times by a man she later identified as one of the Carr brothers. Then, on the night of December 14th, Reginald Carr borrowed his girlfriend's Toyota Camry and drove to Jonathan's girlfriend's house. Jonathan told Tronda he was getting on a train to go to Cleveland at 2 a.m., it was shortly before 10 p.m. when they left Tronda's house. Less than an hour later, a woman living next door to the group on Birchwood Drive was followed home by a light-colored Toyota. At 11 p.m., the cars broke into the house shared by Jason, Brad, and Aaron, where they spent the next three hours robbing, raping, and beating them and their girlfriends, H.G. and Heather. By 2.30 a.m., four members of the group were dead, and the cars wasted no time in going back to the triplex to take as much as they could before going their separate ways. Police later retrieved Brad's 52-inch television and his wallet containing his ID, Jason's checkbook and wallet, Aaron's luggage and computer equipment, and HG's credit card inside the apartment, and the stolen Dodge Dakota that was parked outside. They also found receipts for each of the ATM withdrawals the group had been forced to make. Jonathan had told Tronda that he missed his train and needed a place to sleep. He was wearing a leather jacket, a black and orange FUBU sweater, jeans, and boots. He had hundreds of dollars in his pocket when he arrived in Stephanie's Toyota Camry. A few hours later, he told Tronda that Reginald was coming over to swap cars. A white Plymouth was then parked outside instead of the Camry. Soon afterwards, Tronda noticed the news report stating that the police were searching for a suspect wearing the same sweater he'd been wearing. She woke Jonathan up to ask if he'd heard about it. He said that he hadn't, and Tronda told him the gunman had forced the victims to take money out from ATMs. Jonathan sat up and asked Tronda how the police could know that. 
Tronda told him that one of the victims had survived. At about 8 a.m., Tronda's 14-year-old niece was getting ready for school when she complained that she couldn't find her jacket. Jonathan offered her a black vinyl down coat that was later identified as belonging to Jason Beffert. The midday news report contained footage of Reginald's arrest, and Tronda confronted Jonathan and asked him what had happened. He denied any involvement, but he began to cry. Minutes later, Tronda's mother pieced together that the man the police were looking for was the same man who had slept on her sofa. Police later found more stolen property in the White Plymouth parked outside. By the afternoon, both cars were in custody and taken to the hospital to have samples of their hair and DNA taken. Detective Kelly Otis supervised the process. Jonathan asked him what had happened to the men who had committed the quadruple homicide a week earlier. Detective Otis told him they had been charged with capital murder, and Jonathan asked what that meant. After being told it meant they could get the death penalty, which was administered by lethal injection, Jonathan's expression changed, and he asked, Do they feel it? Sedgwick County Coroner Mary Dudley completed post-mortem examinations of the victims at the Sedgwick County Forensic Science Center. Heather had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the head, as had Aaron, Brad, and Jason. There was evidence of bruising on Heather's lower limbs, including her knees, which were consistent with having been placed on all fours as she was attacked. Aaron had also sustained blunt force trauma to his head and neck, including an injury on his forehead that was consistent with being hit with a golf club and the butt of a gun. Jason also had blunt force trauma injuries to his back and buttocks consistent with the golf club, and Brad had bruising on his face. The coroner analyzed bullet trajectory to establish the paths the bullets had taken in an attempt to understand how close the shooter had been standing to the victims. In Heather and Aaron's case, the two who were shot first, the pistol had been touching their heads as the trigger was pulled. The killer had been standing slightly further back as he shot Brad and Jason. The coroner determined that the trajectory was consistent with the victims having knelt in front of the shooter, facing forwards with their heads bowed. An autopsy was also carried out on H.G.'s dog, Nikki, who sustained a blunt force severe injury to her neck as well as puncture wounds in the same area. A wooden-headed golf club was found in the Birchwood Triplex during police search. After the cars were in custody, the detectives took photographs of them to show the surviving victims, Andrew Schrieber, Anne Walenta, and H.G. Ballistics testing concluded that the bullets fired in all three crimes, recovered from either the victims, the crime scene, or their cars, had all been fired from the same gun. The gun had yet to be recovered. DNA evidence would also link the cars, specifically Jonathan, to the rapes, the stolen property, and it placed them inside the triplex. HG identified Reginald Carr from photographs she was shown. Anne Walenta was recovering in the Wesley Medical Center when detectives brought her an array of photographs and asked if she could identify the person who shot her she picked out a photograph of Reginald Carr. As evidence mounted and the case against the cars was being compiled, Anne Walenta's condition stabilized, and she was cleared to be transferred to a rehabilitation center. She had been left paralyzed from the waist down as a result of her injuries. On January 2, 2001, she appeared to be doing well. She was happy that the suspects were in custody and that she would still be able to play the cello. Sadly, at 11.50 a.m. that morning, a pulmonary embolism developed as a complication of her paralysis, and she died as a result. The cars would be charged with a fifth murder when they faced trial in October 2002. After numerous attempts by the Carr brothers' defense lawyers to have the case thrown out or to have the trial moved, jury selection began in September of 2002. The cars were facing 113 criminal counts, including robbery, kidnapping, rape, and murder. 
Opening arguments began in early October. District Attorney Nola Falston told the jury, This is a case about nine days in December 2000. It's about seven victims, five murders, two survivors, and two brothers. Before testimony began, Reginald Carr's lawyer, Val Wachtel, said his client was innocent and that Jonathan Carr had committed the crimes alongside an unknown man. Reginald's lawyer argued that the stolen property found in his possession had been given to him by his younger brother. Jonathan Carr's defense attorney, Mark Mana, said that Reginald was the only one identified in the carjacking of Andrew Schreiber and the fatal shooting of Ann Walenta. He told the jury, There's not one piece of evidence or information to show Jonathan Carr had anything to do with these things, other than he's Reginald Carr's brother. It's only guilt by association. The courtroom was packed, and the only vacant seats were the ones beside the Carr brothers' mother. Testimony began with witnesses who spoke about the early hours of December 15th, when H.G. arrived at the Johnsons' house and deputies discovered the bodies in the soccer complex. The most harrowing testimony came from H.G. on the third and fourth day of the trial. Once again, she recounted what happened on the night of December 14th, when the cars broke into the triplex on Birchwood Drive. In graphic detail, she recalled how she and Heather were raped, how the cars forced their friends to do the same before they were driven to ATMs and ultimately taken to the soccer complex to be executed. Over three weeks, the testimony continued and evidence was shown to the jury. Evidence included Jonathan's DNA being found during the rape examination of HG and throughout the triplex in hair samples. Heather's DNA was found on a pair of shorts belonging to Reginald Carr. There was also testimony that Reginald had a sexually transmitted disease at the time and he had passed it to HG. An enormous amount of stolen property had been found in the brothers' possession that directly linked them to the Birchwood home and to the carjacking. The gun used in the commission of all three crimes was found three months after the spree, and it was conclusively proven to have been used to kill Jason, Aaron, Brad, Heather, and Anne. It had also been used to shoot the tire on Andrew Schreiber's vehicle. Footwear impressions were also linked to the shoes Jonathan and Reginald Carr had been wearing at the time the crimes were committed. In total, 90 witnesses testified over the course of the trial. Reginald Carr's defense was heard outside of the presence of the jury. He claimed that on December 14th, he borrowed Stephanie's Toyota Camry and spent time with his brother at Tronda's house before returning to Stephanie's apartment to collect his Plymouth. According to Reginald, Jonathan left in the Camry and called him in the early hours of the next morning to tell him that he and a friend had shot people. Reginald explained that he went to Tronda's house to speak with his brother and agreed to let the unknown accomplice drive Jason's stolen truck, containing the property taken from the home, to Stephanie's apartment. Reginald said that on the way back, he had driven past the address where Jonathan had told him the robbery had been committed, and that's why he was stopped in the area. His testimony was not allowed as it was classified as hearsay. Closing arguments began October 31st, where D.A. Fulston and Chief Deputy Kim Parker summed up the prosecution's case. Parker told the jury, These are crimes driven by greed, driven by selfishness, driven by lust, by twisted sexual gratification, by disregard for the value of human life, disregard for life, to kill a dog. Reginald Carr's lawyer argued that the evidence against his client pointed to Jonathan Carr and that the eyewitness identification of Reginald had been flawed. Jonathan's lawyer said it had been the same gun used in each crime and that survivors had implicated Reginald as their attacker. He said that while there was evidence against Jonathan, it was Reginald who had killed the victims. He told the jury, But don't go back and just check the boxes guilty on all counts. It shouldn't be guilty by association. It should be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. 
The jury were given the option of finding either or both of the cars guilty of capital murder in the cases of Aaron, Brad, Heather, and Jason. They could also consider four counts of first or second degree murder, which included Ann Walenta's murder. Referring to the 800-plus exhibits that had been admitted, D.A. Fulston ended the closing arguments by telling the jurors, The evidence is everywhere. People have come from everywhere to tell you what has happened. You have no question or doubt. The jury deliberated for 12 hours over the course of three days before returning with a verdict. They found Reginald Carr guilty of all 50 crimes he was charged with, including four counts of capital murder, one count of first-degree murder, carjacking, and robbery. Jonathan Carr was also found guilty of capital murder and 39 other crimes. He was found not guilty in relation to the carjacking of Andrew Schreiber. Both brothers were found guilty of not only raping H.G. and Heather, but of raping the male victims too, as they had forced them to sexually assault the women. They were found guilty of 193 crimes in total. As the brothers were led from the courtroom after the verdict was announced, Reginald Carr was seen to smile and wink at the victims' families. Under Kansas law, the same jury who had found the brothers guilty also had to decide whether or not they would face capital punishment they had to return a unanimous decision in order to impose the death penalty, and even one juror's doubts would result in a life sentence instead of lethal injection. As part of the sentencing phase, the defense presented mitigating evidence to try and save their clients' lives. The Carr brothers' mother, Janice Harding, took the stand to detail her son's upbringing. Janice told the court, I know other families out there are probably hating me to death. I'm sorry for them, but spare my children. I love them just as much as you would love your children. I believe there is good in them. There is just something went wrong along the way. Addressing her sons directly, she said, I don't know what went wrong, but I love you. I love you both. And I'm sorry for everything that happened. If I did something wrong, I am sorry. I'd just like to say I'm sorry to everybody. I don't know if this is my fault. If it was, I'm just sorry. Sorry. Testimony was also given from the Carr brothers' relatives and those who knew them who described how their childhood had been dysfunctional and marred by sexual and physical abuse. On November 15, 2002, Reginald and Jonathan Carr were sentenced to death for their crimes. The victims and their families were allowed to address the court before the sentence was imposed by Judge Paul Clark. Jason Buffert's family explained that Jason's murder had also ended his father's life, who died before the Carrs were brought to justice. Brad Haka's father said of his firstborn and only son, There are givers and takers in life. Brad was a giver and wanted to help others. There are also takers in life, and the Carr brothers are certainly takers with no conscience that we can see. Heather Muller's mother spoke about the effect her daughter's murder had on everyone who knew her. She said, During grief counseling, I was asked to write a letter of goodbye to Heather, and I said I can't ever tell her goodbye. Every single day, every single day, my heart is breaking. I will forever have a broken heart. Heather lived more in her 25 years than some people live in a lifetime. She embraced life. If anyone asked her how she was doing, she said, fantastic. Not just fine, but fantastic. That's become one of my goals, to feel that again so I can say that when somebody asks me. I want to be able to hold Heather again and tell her good night. God bless you. I love you. I can only hold her picture, and it's so flat and lifeless. I know Heather is in heaven, but I wasn't ready for it to be so soon. Aaron Sandler's family spoke about his intentions to join the priesthood and how he had been a pillar of support to everyone who knew him from a very young age. Anne Walenta's daughter, Suzanne, said, She was an amazing musician. She never gave herself enough credit for that. 
She taught underprivileged students the cello. She taught anyone the cello who wanted to learn. Andrew Schrieber spoke about the lasting effects his abduction had had on him and how all he wanted was justice. H.G. spoke about the terror that had continued to plague her almost two years on from the night her boyfriend and friends were killed. She said, I wake up in sweats from my nightmares. I pace at night because of noises that I think are somebody breaking into my house. There is the fear that evil will once again come into my life and take away the things that are precious to me. I had no choice in what Reginald and Jonathan Carr did that night, and I wasn't given the choice to save Brad or Aaron or Heather or Jason. I had a choice to lie there and die or to get up and live. I chose to live, and I will still choose to live. By law, Reginald and Jonathan are guaranteed the right to a sentence that is not cruel or unusual in nature. On December 15th, the law of Reginald and Jonathan Carr didn't guarantee four people the same right, and my common sense tells me that the sentence imposed on them will be much kinder than the sentence imposed on me, my friends, and all of our families. They say that in order to grieve, you must know happiness, and my grief is immeasurable because my happiness was endless. In the aftermath of the trial, the victims' families filed lawsuits against the state for negligently granting Reginald Carr parole in the weeks before the crime spree began. Death sentences are subject to automatic appeals in Kansas. The Carrs launched numerous appeals, citing errors, including prejudice and the fact that they had not been tried separately. In 2014, the Kansas Supreme Court overturned the Carrs' death sentences but upheld their conviction, meaning they would serve at least 70 years in prison. The death sentence was reinstated by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2016, and the sentence was affirmed in January 2022. In January 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear another appeal, meaning the cars have exhausted their appeals. There have been no executions in Kansas since 1965. One positive outcome of the horrendous tragedy was that H.G. and Andrew Schrieber met during the trial. Their shared experiences bonded them in a unique way, and they ultimately fell in love. They have been married for almost 20 years and have children together. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.